Welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock here with labor lawyer Ed Smith. Happy New Year to everybody. And, Happy uh, New Year. Happy New Year. What a day to remember, but it's good to be back in the air. Hey, listen, if you want to call in, you know, we always love hearing people's uh, opinions and comments and questions about your rights at work or anything uh, that you want to talk about uh, work-related. Uh, give us a call at 202 588 0893. Chris, how you been, brother? Happy New Year, brother. Happy New Year to all our listeners out there. And hey, before we forget, thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who contributed during our fall pledge drive. That keeps us on the air. And uh, on a day like this, uh, it's a good reminder of why WPFW uh, is an important voice in our democracy. Uh, this show is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's about 150 uh, radio and podcast shows just like this. You can find out more about them at laborradionetwork.org. As Ed said, we love to hear from you, 202-588-0893. If you've got questions about your rights to work, today we're really going to open up the phones uh, for the first half of the show. It is January 6th. It was just a year ago that a mob attacked the U.S. Capitol trying to uh, undo a Democratic election. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts, your reflections uh, at uh, this one-year anniversary. A little bit later, unions are not only good for workers, they're good for communities and for democracy. And that's according to a new report by the Economic Policy Institute. We're going to visit with EPI policy analyst Margaret Poydock later this hour. We're going to have music. I think you're going to like it. And as always, we'll have this week's labor, latest labor headlines. Uh, first up, though, Ed, uh, let's take a listen. Um, I've got some audio here um, from AFL-CIO President uh, Liz Schuler that uh, is especially important today. Let's take a listen. A year ago today, we watched in shock as American citizens violently attacked our own government. Their goal was to stop the peaceful transition of power and overturn the will of the American people. It was also an exercise by extremists, people who wanted to take America back to a time of segregation and voter suppression, racial violence and division. And in the face of terror, brave Capitol Police officers defended our democracy. And we, the working people of our country, have always stood up to defend our democracy with our voices and our votes at work and through our unions. Democracy is in our DNA. Our unions run, like our country, by voting, by giving equal voice to members on the job and in our communities. And while America prevailed on January 6th, the insurrectionists and those who inspired them continue to wage war on our democracy at every level of government. So we must continue to fight for voting rights and worker rights, equality and justice, for democracy in the workplace and at the ballot box. 
Our democracy is only safe as long as all of us are ready to defend it. And a year later, we remain ready, as we always have, to mobilize, educate, activate, and do our part. Our freedom depends on it. AFL-CIO, we've got a link at dclabor.org where you can click, find out more about uh, defending democracy. Also, there will be a candlelight vigil for democracy. That's uh, this afternoon, 430 at the U.S. Capitol. You can get details at dclabor.org. Click on calendar. So what are your thoughts and reflections on the state of democracy? Give us a call, 202 Five eight eight zero eight nine three. Ed, what are what are your thoughts? Um, well, that was really a wonderful statement by Liz Schuler, and I'd really be interested in listening to the rest of it. I also got a chance to hear um, some of President Biden's remarks. Yeah, and um, he really nails it. Hits at home. Uh, I would encourage people to go on the internet and listen to his uh, listen to his remarks. It's just. It's still surreal to me, Chris, in many mm -hmm. respects. And it wouldn't be that way if that was it, if that was the day and it got stopped and then, okay, everybody realized, oh, we did wrong. But the, right. the real problem with me is you still have, I believe, two-thirds, almost three-quarters of Republicans still think that this election was, uh, the presidential election was uh, marred um, by irregularities and was, uh, and, and was just a false election. I, I find that... I, Words, words escape me on that. How, how, how did we, how did we get here? And it isn't just the former president. It's a symptomatic of, of problems we've had over the years. And I, I just, um, I hope that uh, some of these laws uh, that were passed in states to have voting restrictions can get overturned on a national level uh, with voting rights, uh, the Voting Rights Act and some other uh, um uh, pieces of legislation out there, but it's just still to me to this day, it, I'm, I'm 58 years old and, and I don't recall ever really seeing this kind of divisiveness. And I was young in Vietnam War. I know that the 60s were divisive, but this is almost just intellectually different to me. Um, you know, the Vietnam War, Chris, you could you could you could understand some people understanding that they want to fight for America, fight for the troops. You get all these sure. reports. And, and I think there could be differences of opinion on on what that war was about. I, I obviously am someone who comes down. They've never should have gotten in the first place. But it seems to be different now that, that there's just a, a, a obstinate denial of facts. And that is troubling. 202-588-0893. Are, are you troubled by what happened a year ago? Or I think to Ed's point, um, you know, it wasn't over a year ago. And there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, maybe that was just uh, just the beginning. There's a terrific, fairly long piece by David Serrata uh, in the, and Jacobin. Uh, the long American meltdown led to the January 6th insurrection and he basically says that the Capitol riot was the product of a decades-long attempt to destroy democracy in America. He kind of calls out the Democrats, saying they never made an effort to stop it uh, by creating a government that's serious about the public interest. He talks about, frankly, Ed, you know, he talks about how the Democrats lost a lot of our members, a lot of working folks, to uh, to Reagan. 
because they, you know, got got too close, uh, at least in, in his and some other people's opinion, to the corporate class. And a lot of folks went over, and I think Trump was able to capitalize on that uh, a lot as as well. Let me, a um, couple of statements I came across, uh, good statements I thought from other labor leaders. Uh, John Costa, who we've had on the show from the Amalgamated Transit Union, he said, we must treat each other with respect and decency, regardless of our differences. Working together as one, we can continue to recover from this pandemic, fight for justice, and ensure voting rights for all. We must never forget we're better as a country than what took place on January 6th. And from the American Federation of Government Employees, President uh, Everett Kelly he had, I thought, an interesting quote. He said, for years, the ringleaders of the January 6th attack spread lies about America's government and the public servants who make it work. They said about to destroy the independent unions like mine, which represent those law enforcement officers, food inspectors, doctors and nurses, caseworkers, emergency response personnel, and so many more. We, the people, will never surrender our democracy. And I think, Ed Smith, that you know some of the some of the things that really stay with me, and there's been a lot of you know replaying of clips and so forth from last year. Just the the hatred and the visceral anger that these folks, who you know, and you and I, we talked about this last year. We've been to you know countless demonstrations at the U.S. Capitol and you know on the Mall. And, 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 you know, about things that we and the people who organized them thought were important, thought they were important for working people, thought they were important for the country. But, you know, never any violence, certainly never laying hands, much less bashing, you know, uh, uh, law enforcement officers who, you know, let's be said, you know, we, 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 you know, certainly I have as somebody who's been organizing these protests, you know, we, we've had issues with some of these folks, right? I mean... <laughs> Sometimes they want us to do things we don't want to do or they don't want us to do things that we want to do. Um, I can tell stories about, you know, things at the Capitol Police. I remember, I remember the Capitol Police threatening to arrest a bunch of nurses, you mm-hmm. know, at the, at, who weren't doing anything other than standing uh, on the street with some signs, Ed Smith. They were not doing nothing. So, right. you know, but it never crossed anybody's mind to lay a finger on these folks and, I think some of the lasting images of, of these these folks being, you know, physically assaulted. People died. People are still dealing with the trauma a year later, and and that that really sticks with me, uh, you know, in, in terms of where, where where I'm at. Yeah, you know, um, it goes back to uh, the statement about treating people with decency. Yeah, um, you know, I don't have to like you. Um, I can yell at you. Uh, but I don't need to be beating you over the head and, 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 and instigating violence. You know, you know, you know, it's like in a mob, a mob mm-hmm. once, once, once a little match is lit, it becomes a fire and, and then it becomes a, you know, a, a big fire. And, and I think that's kind of what happened at the insurrection. I'm sure that there were a lot of people that were going there to stand up for the president, what they believed standing up for. Democracy. Absolutely. And then, and then they're in the throng. They're angry, and they've been they've been um, nudged along, pushed along by the former president and a lot of other people uh, uh, that that really are angry that the world is changing, that America is changing, that we are uh, 
trying to become more diverse and trying to change kind of the status quo and the, the changing corporations, uh, you know, the support of corporations and things like that. So a lot of people are just get angry. And then once, once a mob starts to develop that, that anger just overflows. And even like a normal person who wouldn't, who wouldn't normally ever think about beating up a cop, that's their anger is there. Their anger is even against the vice president Pence at the time. Right. That, that's right. Talk about carrying water for a president for four <laughs> years. That man carried his water and more, and um, they wanted to kill him. I, right. I, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if we ever come back from this, Chris. To be honest, I think we're going to be in a lot of fights, and from the labor community, we're going to have to continue those fights. Uh, I, I guess part of my thinking is also that we talk about issues and we talk about bread and butter issues of the working class. And the working class is not just people who are in blue collar industries, the working class, people like me and you, you know, I make a good salary, but I'm still part of the working class. And I believe in, in fairness and equity. And I think if we show that, and of course, you know, as, as a representative of nurses and other healthcare workers, healthcare is a big issue. And I think we just need to keep pushing the, the uh, validity of our, of our issues. Excuse me, I got a little ambulance going by. I'm going to yeah. go speaking speaking of healthcare, two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. You're listening to your rights at work. If you've got questions about your rights on the job, give us a call two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three three. This, uh, this first uh, first hour, hour we're talking, we're talking about. about- what happened on January 6th, uh, a year ago, its effect on working people, its effect on democracy. Unions are fundamentally democratic institutions. I think that one of the things that we in the labor movement uh, respond to here is, you know, the refusal by the, the ex-president to accept loss. You know, in the labor movement, let's be honest, we, we lose a lot more than we win. So maybe we're a little too used to it. But that's part of the deal. You know, you fight and and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And, you know, when you lose, you don't give up. And when you win, you don't rest on your laurels. Um, Let me start out. uh, We've got a lot of labor headlines I want to get to uh, today. But let me start out with one that's directly related to this. This is a report that I found in Politico. And you are not going to believe this, Ed Smith. But um, in their wisdom, the leaders at the uh, Capitol Police are talking about privatizing some of the Capitol Police. I, 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 I kid you not, you know, it's uh, let me I, I'm going to do a little bit of a quick deep dive here because it is it's it's so crazy. It's funny or or, or, or not. Um, so there was a job uh, posting published on Sunday and it calls for applicants to apply to something called Intercon Security Systems Incorporated for the quote exciting role of an unarmed security officer, unquote. (laughs) Listed responsibility include many of the tasks assigned to current armed Capitol Police officers, access control, processing visitors for entry into a facility, conducting inspections and screenings, patrol and responding to calls, directing traffic, and so on and so forth. Um, I have to say a couple things here. First of all, uh, the the Capitol Police are unionized. Uh, they have a union called the Capitol Police Labor Committee, part, part of the uh, Fraternal Order of Police. They called it, quote-unquote, a recipe for disaster, which seems obvious on the face of it. I have to say the Capitol Police leadership kind of 
backed off on it, say on Monday, they said, oh, no, this is this is not finalized. Um, but uh, the announcement out. Sorry. So they had already had a vacancy announcement, but then they oh, said. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here, a couple of other things. Uh, pay uh, for this uh, exciting unarmed uh, position <laughs> starts, starts at uh, $24 an hour. Uh, a private, this is basically just starting in the unionized capital police, you make 31, just over $31 an hour. So uh, there's that. Also, you're not only coming into, uh, you know, a staff, you know, a capital police that was, you know, physically attacked. Uh, they've had 135 have resigned or retired since January 6th. Not all of them because of January 6th, but, you know, uh, I think a lot of folks probably were, were thinking about that. The chief of the Capitol Police says that they're probably down, get this, as with 400 officers from where they should be. And the, uh, the chief of the, the uh, police union pointed out that Michael Bolton, who is the, uh, the Capitol Police Inspector General, he told Congress in December that fewer than a third of his recommendations to beef up security at the Capitol have been fully implemented and warned that major shortfalls remain in training, intelligence, and operational planning. So, yeah, folks, uh, get right over there and apply for, you know, this underpaid, unarmed, uh, short-staffed uh, Capitol Police. Uh, it just, I mean, I, it, th- th- this would be their idea of how to deal with a real issue is sort of mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I still go back to the fact that they had already announced the position, but now they're backing off and saying, oh, this was not final. I mean, talk about uh, uh, changing the facts in midstream. I mean, <laughs> the fact is, is that they intended to do that, and they got pressure and changed their mind. Uh, you know, I don't understand why we don't take recommendations of task force that are that are designed to try to improve situations much more seriously. Uh, There needs to be clearly a lot more training there. I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but given the facts of what happened, there needs to be a lot more training and and also a lot more coordination from other agencies with the Capitol Police, because the Capitol Police was pretty much left on their own for quite a few hours there. But yeah, uh, unarmed Unarmed positions. I'm okay with unarmed positions if you're trained properly and you're paid properly and, and you have all the right resources. But given what happened a year ago, that seems kind of crazy to me. Absolutely. 202-588-0893 if you want to join the conversation. A couple of uh, other uh, quick uh, local updates, Ed. Um, you were uh, reading Union, C, uh, Union City. You might have heard uh, we were talking about politics and prose, the uh, progressive bookstore, the workers there. Uh, we're trying. It was interesting. At first, the management um, was kind of resistant. They hired a union busting firm. But we have very good news to report. Earlier this week, uh, the bookstore formally recognized uh, USCW Local 400 as the collective bargaining agent for the workers, for the politics and prose workers union. And they're going to start to negotiate a contract now, as you and I both know. There's a, there can be a long way between, you know, recognizing the union getting, getting the contract, but, you know, one step at a time, right? One step at a time. And, you know, you've got to be optimistic, too. There, I've had times when uh, we had to go through an election process, and then we had a contract within two or three months. Sometimes management will fight you and fight you and fight you, and then when they realize that there is a majority that wants a union, then they'll go ahead and, and um, 
negotiate a fair contract. It's all going to be a matter of what what the uh, employees expect and deserve and what management thinks they expect and deserve. So you just never know. They might end up having a great contract. But that's really, that's great news. As you know, I told you over the holidays, I went to that store. Yes, you did. Bought, yes, you did. Got some books. That was probably uh, what turned it around right there, Ed. I think it was. I think they heard <laughs> Ed Smith from DCA. <laughs> well, geez, if he's over there, we better voluntarily recognize. Boy, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of um, power and in, in, uh, in, 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 in voice? <laughs> Let me give a shout out to uh, the Politics Opposed owners, uh, Bradley Graham and Alyssa Muscatine. This is a quote. They said, as stewards of a local independent business with a 37-year legacy of progressive management and mission, we valued collaborating with employees to solve problems and address needs, and we look forward to working with the union in the same spirit. So uh, let's keep track in the story, but I'm, I'm – uh, as ever, cautiously optimistic. <laughs> they got it done. So they got one 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 check mark done, and now go in and negotiate, and uh, then hopefully there'll be a strong union there. That's good news. Hey, by the way, Another, I know, I know this this is more national, but I, I don't know if you're aware the uh, three hundred and one day strike out in Massachusetts for nurses. Uh, is over and they uh, ratified and they got a number of great protections. I know we've talked about it briefly. We did. That was a long strike. Congratulations strike to them. Long, I think it's the longest strike uh, in the healthcare industry in Massachusetts ever. I'm not sure if I'm right on that, but 300. Let's, uh, let's see if we can get somebody from there on the show. I'd love to hear more about their, uh, their, their battle there. Um, getting, yeah, I'm getting, they, uh, I'm sorry, we got a call, but I've actually talked to someone and they would be absolutely interested in coming Let's on. Let's do it. Let's do it. Absolutely. All right. I think, uh, I think I'm getting a sign that we've got a caller. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and go to the phones. Uh, what's, what's your name and, and uh, what are you calling about? Good morning. Good afternoon. I hope this call finds you in good health and good spirits. My name is Alan Barrish. Hello. Welcome to Your Rights at Work. Thanks for being on. What, what, uh, thanks for calling. What, what's on your mind? You know, I don't really give a hoot what happens to the Capitol Police or any police union until the police union stops messing with Bumia Abu Jamal and stops stops justifying uh, police brutality. You know, I could care less whether they are, they're armed or unarmed. You know, it doesn't matter. And I, I think that that's the way that we should put it. To heck with them. You know, that they deserve what they get until the police decide that they're going to stop protesting um, and stop intimidating people and stop kneeling on people's backs and stop trying to get Mumia Abu-Jamal into the death, give him the death penalty with, with, and, and walk around with slogans like, Fry Mumia. Why should I care what these pigs want? Uh, well, uh, I think uh, I think there's a lot of, of uh, sympathy for, for that point of view out there. And I think that that really raises a, a good point, Ed, you know, certainly within the labor movement, uh, that there there's a lot of different ideas. We've got a lot of different law enforcement. We've got, you know, folks who staff prisons. We've got police officers, although interesting, the fraternal order of police is not in the AFL-CIO. Uh, and, and so the capital police are, are part of that. Uh, he's talking about Mumia Abu Jamal, and that's in prison police. Uh, and, and so there's people sort of all over the, the map on this. But I think, you know, certainly the AFL-CIO and a lot of our unions have been very strong in, in, in support of Black Lives Matter and in, you know, sort of speaking out on police brutality. I think the caller raises a good point. Your thoughts? 
Oh, absolutely. It's a great point. Um, I guess the way I look at it is there are police forces. We're not going to get rid of police and we're not, hopefully we're not going to go back to the days of Pinkerton, uh, which is contracted out goons who do do the uh, do do the uh, work for the corporations, uh, you know, back the mine companies had it back in the, the West. Um, my take on it is I'd rather have professionally trained people who get the proper training to that's do their the job. Right? Your, that's the problem with your trade union mentality. Not, can I finish? Right. Yeah, let me let me finish because I get your point. But the thing is, is if you don't, if there's if there's going to be a police force, let's say D.C. is police force, and we're not going to disband the police force, you've got to make sure that you have the right people doing the right job there with the sensitivity that they need to have in terms of Black Lives Matter. There's no question that we've got to stop police violence, and it, and it has not subsided to much degree at all, even with some of the uh, better court verdicts. But if you're going to have people that are charged with to protect and to serve, quote-unquote, You've got to make sure that they're professional. And I think a union environment is a much better environment than just hiring contract contractors like we have in the past. So well, I, I, thank you for letting me. Thank you for letting that's me. That's the problem me. with your trade union mentality. That's the problem. You don't understand. Even if they're unionized, they're still going to be bigots. They're still going to be a breaking strikes. It's going to be union against union. You got the trade union mentality is what is what got this country in the mess it is today. We need to stop thinking like trade union people and start thinking like activists for humanity. Because like it or not, the AFL-CIO organized hard hat marches against the war in Vietnam. Um, I don't have any faith in the AFL-CIO. They'll, they'll mouth off a little bit and say a few things, but when it comes right down to it, they're in the back, back pocket of the Democratic Party. That's why Lenin said we need to be a tribune of the people, not trade union secretaries. Thanks so much for the call, 202-588-0893. Um, our, our lines are always open. We love to hear from you wherever you're coming from. I think uh, some of his points are, are, are fair. Some of them I'm not sure that we need to lose the trade union mentality, but I'm, I'm not actually sure what that is necessarily. Uh, I do want, before we go to our song, I'm going to get, uh, get Mike to queue up. Uh, I think folks are going to like this song. It's going to be appropriate both for the discussion we're having and also the one that we're going into. But a couple of other just uh, quick headlines, uh, news headlines I wanted to uh, to get into uh, beyond the local ones that we just reported. Uh, this is one, uh, Ed Smith, that I knew that you'd be interested in. The AFL-CIO teamed up with a bunch of nurses' unions, including yours, uh, to demand permanent OSHA COVID-19 safety standards. Can you, in a nutshell, break that down for us? Because it's a little, it's not complicated, but it took me a minute to kind of understand it. Well, and I think this also goes in opposition to the caller's point about trade union mentality. Uh, okay. This, this is where, you know, so OSHA uh, did not have standards on COVID for throughout the Trump presidency, uh, did not have standards uh, at the end of the Trump presidency to to deal with uh, COVID. And um, there was uh, some emergency standards put in place uh, to help with uh, proper proper uh, uh, equipment for uh, healthcare workers to have, protective gear, et cetera. That was uh, emergency regulations. Well, they, they sunsetted. And so uh, 
we, along with um, AFL unions, uh, have petitioned to put them back, you know, make them make them final and, and permanent. Um, and the fact is, is, if we sunset them, if we don't let them to continue, then that allows employers to once again not provide the proper standards in place um, and gives them there, there's there's no OSHA can't do anything about it if their regulations are, aren't in place. So our national union, coupled with a number of AFL unions, uh, have tried to change that. And uh, I know that there's some upcoming uh, potential actions uh, across the country in about a week on this on OSHA standards. So I hope okay. that good. Yeah, thank you for that. And th- no, I think it's important. Uh, I, I, for one, was not aware that we didn't have these kind of protect. You know, the healthcare workers didn't have these kind of protections. And you know, we've talked about this throughout the pandemic. I mean, National Nurses United and the other you know nursing unions and healthcare workers have really. I mean, talk about frontline troops. You know, you all have just been on the cutting edge of this issue. And every time I find out about something, you know, fairly obvious that one assumes would be in place to protect the people who are taking care of us, I am sadly disabused. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm disappointed, but not surprised, I guess I have to say. So going back to the comment about the mentality of the AF trade union, well, that's where I show there you that go. we disagree with that comment. Um, and you can see on this particular issue, talking about safety, it's not just for healthcare workers, it's just for everybody. Right. For everybody. Right. But again, I you know, that we, social, I consider that a social justice issue. Absolutely. And, and again, though, this is, you know, this is a call in show. So we, we love to hear from you folks. 202-588-0893. It's really your show. Uh, I mean, all right, let's go. Agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, that doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we will put you on the air as long as you're, you know, polite and, and have, you know, get to say your say. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the FCC. That's not us. Uh, all right. Let's uh, we're going to come back with Margaret Poiduck, but uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, run a little song here that kind of goes into the theme for the hour. You're listening to your rights with Chris and Ed and WPFW. Let's roll it, Michael. Welcome. Yeah. 
Yes, the selector with all you fascists are bound to lose. That's an old Woody Guthrie song. Bit of a reggae ska beat to it. Uh, just for you, Ed Smith. Just for you. Yeah. Uh, we we haven't done enough reggae ska on this show. So uh, <laughs> it's a new year, baby. It's a new year. Here you go, 2022. All right. We are joined now, as she's been with us before, Margaret Poydock. She's a policy analyst at the Economic Policy Institute. Happy New Year, Margaret. Happy New Year to you both. So I don't know if you caught, we had a caller who was not a, a fan of what he called um, uh, union, what do you call it, Ed Smith? Uh, union. Trade union mentality. Trade union mentality. We're, we're not exactly sure what he meant by that, but I, I thought of you because you've got this new study, uh, you and a bunch of your colleagues, I have to say, uh, at the uh, EPI. Um, about how unions are not only good for workers, but they're good for communities and democracy. So I hope our caller is listening because I hope we might be able to give them a little bit of a different idea uh, about this trade union mentality, so-called. So tell us about the study. Yeah, so um, our study kind of gives a look at, um, in the same way that unions give workers a voice at work uh, with direct impacts on their wages and working conditions. Um, our report shows that unions also give workers a voice in uh, shaping their communities. Um, when there is high union density, uh, states have more uh, equitable economic structures as well as social structures and democracies. Um, so our report documents the correlation between higher levels of unionization at the states and a range of economic, uh, personal, and democratic well-being measures is how we kind of phrase it. Um, and what we found is that the higher the union density a state has, um, there is more of a positive outcome such as higher wages, uh, better health benefits, easier access to unemployment insurance, um, access to paid leave and family and medical leave, as well as uh, less restrictive, or I should say unrestricted voting opportunities. So, and I know Ed wants to get in on this as well, but let me just sort of start out with a sort of a, maybe an obvious question, but one that I've, I've never, I mean, we know that when people have unions, they have better wages, they have better protections. Now you're finding a whole host of other things uh, that are are better. So I guess the obvious question is, that, you know, <laughs> why are so few people in America in unions? Yeah, like you said um there is clearly positive correlation between unions um and i guess the spillover effects they have on our communities um and it is largely based because of the current uh structure of our labor law that makes it very hard for workers to join unions um i think there's the re recent study that shows that uh when polled nearly half of workers who are not in union would join a union if they had the opportunity but obviously that's not being shown in our current state affairs where only around 12% of union workers um, or workers are represented by a union right now. So it is, it re it is really uh, just the current or current law that is preventing these workers from joining unions, um, largely due to corporate interests. <laughs> um, and I mean, there currently is, you know, I, your listeners probably know there is solutions that we policymakers can take um, on the federal level, including the PRO Act, passing the PRO Act, making it easier for workers to join unions and collectively bargain over wages, benefits, and working conditions. Talk to Margaret Poydock. She's an economic policy analyst at the uh, 
EPI Economic Policy Institute. Ed Smith, I know you've got, uh, you always have something to say. I always have something to say, whether it's <laughs> not, who cares? Um, first of all, Margaret, happy new year, happy new year to you as well. And uh, Chris always, I wouldn't say always, but often will accuse me of asking these wide open questions that really are more like a five hour discussion. And by the way, Chris, that was one of those questions. Um, and Margaret, I'm Bush, learning from the master here, learning from the master. Ed. Well, Mar <laughs> Margaret hit it out of the park. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess my take on this, of, of course, I'm not surprised about the study um, because I am in the communities, but I think it's also a lesson for labor unions who often ignore the community and ignore community relations because they're so bogged down. We're so bogged down with the day-to-day -day activities of representing our workers in grievances or meetings with management, contract negotiations, you name it. <clears throat> and I think um, one of the lessons I would learn from this is get out into the community. Not only will this help your workers, but it will help the community and the community can tell the workers what they need. And I think specifically in the healthcare industry, and I think specifically about Ward 7 and Ward 8 in the District of Columbia, where there is a healthcare wasteland. And we learned a lot from uh, residents of, of the, that community about what they thought of the union, what they thought of healthcare. Um, so uh, am I, am, what, I would like you to comment on, on what my reaction is. Yeah, so our study found, you know, uh, through research, uh, other previous researchers, but also through um, news from unions that like unions are the core reason why a lot of these policies are enacted at the state level. Um, it's so that that's kind of my take is like the collective action of unions um, is both at work, but also it's in the community too. So Things like paid sick leave, expansion of Medicaid expansion um, at the state level, including higher minimum wages, they're all they were all, you know, enacted through ballot measures, or most of them were um, through largely through union support. So it's yeah, there is a very integral connection between unions and um, these progressive policies that are enacted in these communities. And I think going to the caller's point, I hate I hate to keep going back to the caller's point. I think one of the reasons why he has some validity is there has been a history in our labor movement of not including people, um, not including people of color, not include not not having discussions in the community to get community support. Now I see a change in that. Maybe maybe not everybody sees the change in that, but we all know now that paid leave would not get enacted without community support. And it's not, and I'm not just talking about organizational community support. I'm talking about John and Jane Doe, who maybe never have walked a picket line or never went to a, a city council meeting. And on that too, I kind of want to, it touches a little bit in our report, but um, just kind of the historical context of um, unions and civil rights and how interwoven they have been throughout the history, especially in the 60s. Um, I think we mentioned that, you know, DFL was a integral or they lobbied or they pushed for such historical uh, laws like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 60s. Um, so there, I just kind of want to mention that. And there is that context where, you know, unions have not been seen as inclusive, but they also as broader um, overall, they have 
been pushing for progressive and inclusive policies to make sure that laws work for everyone. We're talking to Margaret Poydak from the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, you can join the conversation 202-588-0893. They've got a new study uh, that, frankly, not really news on this show, but it turns out unions are not just good for workers. They're good for communities and for democracy. Margaret, I know this is not uh, – I, I am getting a bit like Ed here, but I'm, I'm going to – I'm going to throw it to you anyway. It is January 6th. We uh, obviously we have 12 minutes left, Chris. So be I know, I know. So <laughs> no, but I'm just wondering. You know, you're you're here in DC, like we are. You saw what happened a year ago, and you know, I was I was listening to one of the people who was in that crowd last year. He was a FedEx driver, um, so he was a working working guy. He said he wasn't really a Trump fan per se. You know, he didn't really care for Trump specifically, but he liked the Make America Great message uh, that really resonated with him. And he, you know, showed up at the rally, wound up in the Capitol, although he had no intention of doing that. And I just was kind of thinking about that particular FedEx driver, you know, in as somebody sort of in your report, right? I think there's a lot of, you know, your, your report looks at sort of overall trends, but of course it's made up of individuals like that person or the people who showed up at the rally. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about how this is playing out on the ground um, in, in events like January 6th. That is a great question. Um, I'm not sure if I have really concrete thoughts on that yeah I, I apologies if i don't have a great answer for that um uh i, I yeah. guess let me give you a little bit of a handle into it one of the things that made me think about it was that part of the thing that you that you mentioned was about unions being in the union reducing like racial resentment right um and and sort of economic equality and and i'm just and I'm wondering if if uh, I was looking at the chart, you know, of the different densities that really is quite amazing. You go from something like 24% in a state like New York to something like, I think it's like 3% in South Carolina. Um, and, and I'm just, it, it seems to me that in some ways you can really track a lot of this, you know, increase um, in sort of alienation you know, to the attacks on unions. At least I, I track that, but I'm not a I'm not a hard data researcher like you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you could say laws um, such as you know right to work laws have definitely contributed to this. I don't know if that's kind of where mm -hmm. we're going, but yeah, um, I w yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know, any way to like reverse those laws, or I think the Pro Act definitely. Um, Passing the PRO Act would definitely help this issue, I guess you could say. Sorry if I'm not being as coherent. Um, but given that the PRO Act does allow for um, basically unions to negotiate, negotiate over fair share fees, um, it doesn't really fully reverse right to work, but it does you know, allow for uh, unions to negotiate over that. Um, so I think it's just one priority should definitely be passing the PRO Act. Um, and doing so, you know, allows workers to form unions, and then we can enact more of these progressive policies um, uh, that benefit workers and their communities as well. 
Yeah, and I guess one of the things that we always wonder about, and I think one of the things that we're thinking about, you know, is a big push, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, for voting rights uh, in connection, you know, with what's going on um, right now. This this anniversary has really given uh, a lot of folks kind of a, you know, in more of a push for that. But, you know, voting rights is connected to worker rights. I mean, these these are all fundamental things that seem like uh, they're they're under attack. And and I know. You know, Ed, we've we've talked about this on this show for for a long time, and I, I always wonder, Margaret. You know, sort of a chicken and egg kind of thing, right? I mean, you know, you've got the research, we've got all these policy folks here in D.C., but you know how this plays out on the ground and how we can actually, you know, get these rights for folks who really need them, uh, who need more more, you know, just more money in their paychecks, more health care, more, you know, Ed was just talking about, you know, uh, health care workers who don't have the kind of basic job protections that just seems obvious that, that they that they should have. Um, so I'm just, Ed, let me get your thoughts on, on this and we do just sure. have a couple of minutes here. Well, sure. You know, I see this in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, the 5,000 foot view, which I think Margaret is, talking about in this report shows that, uh, you know, when you have unions, uh, union density, a lot of union people in a particular town, they're going to have better health care, they're going to have better uh, uh, job rates. Uh, But then that still has to get paired with the historical underpinnings of uh, intra-union fights, intra-union fights among members. I mean, I was, one of the things I was thinking about, Margaret, is um, and, and it goes back to what the caller was saying, is I think about uh, Dr. King going down into Memphis and uh, doing that strike. That strike, uh, I'm reading a great book on that, and I'll, I'll have to try to remember the name of it. But um, that strike, a lot of, so the white preachers didn't want to join. The black preachers, some of them did, some of them didn't. They, they had a good, they had, you know, good uh, money coming in. They were living a good life, so they didn't want to get in the mix. Then you had some trade unionists that didn't want to go. Then you had some other trade unionists that were totally supportive of, of Dr. King. So I think the the five thousand foot uh, uh, level is great is good news. But the fact is that I've always said this that there's just because you're in a labor movement or just because you're a union person doesn't mean you have any higher morals than anyone else. Um, doesn't mean you have the high ground and everybody else has the low ground. Uh, you know there are problems in in every institution, and educating people about the need to be in the union, and then once you're in the union, educating people about basic human rights, healthcare, Black Lives Matter, um, job security, etc. That starts to come. It, it gives people a forum in the union environment to to have those discussions to make those social improvements. I guess that's how I look at it. Well, I think I think actually Liz Shuler talked about that in, in her statement at the beginning of the show, talking about how, you know, democracy, union democracy uh, gives gives workers, you know, a voice at the table within their unions and then uh, with within uh, their, their workplaces as well. Uh, Margaret, I found a piece uh, with the connection I was trying to make, which is you have this section on democracy in your report. And this is what was uh, sort of stood out to me, that significantly fewer restricting voting laws have been passed in the 17 highest union density states than in the middle 17, which includes D.C., by the way, and the 17 lowest union density states. Um, and then there's other sort of really amazing one, which is 70 percent of low union density states have passed at least one voter suppression law. 
uh, that that just sort of blew my mind. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, like you said, we looked at um, our high, medium, and low unit density, comparing it to uh, uh, voting restrictions that occurred between 2011 and 2019. So it doesn't even include anything that's happened in the past two years. But yeah, it's it found that um, that high union density states, very few of them have passed uh, voter suppression laws of any sort. And like you said, the uh, low, uh, compared to low union density states, nearly 70% had, had passed at least one, if not multiple forms of um, voter suppression laws. Yeah, that that that. I mean, Ed, Ed, don't you find that? I mean, I guess I mean it totally makes sense. And also, when you look at which states they are, I mean, you know, there's southern states, there's states where we that we have few, if any, unions. So, I mean, it's it's not again, it's not like breaking news. But when I mean, one of the things that EPI does so well, Margaret, is just sort of you know really do some of the underlying you know sort of oh that's that's why this is going on. Duh. <laughs> you know? it's, well, it's but it, it's, it's, it's like, still shocking. It's like- it's like either you believe science or you, or you don't, and these reports ah. are specifically database, so they're they're accurate. So somebody can say, "Well, I don't believe it." Well, they're wrong. Oh, oh by the way, that book's name was uh, "Going Down Jericho Road" by Michael K. Honey H O N E Y. I advise people to check it out. I have no interest in this, by the way. <laughs> Michael's a great. Michael's terrific. We should have him on the show. He's he's a fantastic, great, fantastic book. <clears throat> so anyway. <laughs> we're on radio and i'm like okay let's, let's here. it's it's ed it's ed it's ed, it's uh, ed smith's book corner uh, margaret so um so yeah so um uh, also just looking ahead so this is a great report margaret um really i thought very timely particularly you know when we're looking you know at, at what's coming up in 22 we've got the midterms we've got this push uh, obviously, you know, for um, not only the PRO Act, but, you know, uh, the uh, voting voting rights, just a lot of stuff, um, you know, before before the midterms, while the Democrats uh, are still in power. Are, are there things that you at EPI are, are looking down the road at uh, that we should be thinking about? Yeah, just a little preview in it. This is kind of bias on me as a my policy team working on, we are definitely going to be looking, doing a deep dive into uh, the annual work stoppages data BLS is going to be releasing in February. So um, that is my next thing to focus on once, um, well, we're going to continue focusing on this report, but that is the next thing we'll be focusing on. I'm going to be really keeping an eye on um, and really making sure we're highlighting all that has happened in the past or in 2021 um, that comes to strikes work stoppages even there was even a lockout <laughs> with the MLB. Right. so that's right uh, yeah that's good so. stuff um you know it's great stuff you know one of the things i take issue with the the, the bls is that i think a 500 member strike in a smaller community is sometimes more impactful than a 1500 member strike in a larger community and i think that there should be more data on that is my opinion well, actually, let me ask Margaret on that before we let you go, because you, you got you you don't necessarily go by that by five hundred, right? You you look at all different kinds of stuff. So we mainly are focusing on the work uh, stoppages that BLS reports, but there is um, there is a great tracker out there by Cornell's Labor yes, um, yes. International or the the Labor School. So um, I definitely refer to people as that for a resource when you want to see like the full breadth of. 
uh, worker actions that have taken place in 2021, but which we'll, we'll tie into that into our report, but we will be focusing on uh, what BLS is reporting, um, which I think Ed said is over, it's over a thousand workers, one work shift. It does limit it very much. Um, it doesn't really show the full scope of what was happening last year. Excellent. Well, we, we will look forward to having you back on to talk about that because we're going to be very interested to get a better understanding of what did happen last year, but also any uh, clues as we look into 2022. Margaret Poydock, it's always wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you and your team, uh, your wonderful team uh, at EPI for the great work, and we look forward to uh, visiting with you again this year. Thank you both. Happy New Year again. Happy New Year. Margaret Poydock, she's a policy analyst with the Economic Policy Institute. All right, Ed, that uh, hour just goes faster and faster and faster, doesn't it? Uh, That's what I was about to say. Another hour flies by. Thanks so much to Mike Nisella, our fabulous engineer, the man with the plan. Happy New Year to the whole crew at WPFW. Thanks again to all of you who contributed on this show and all the other shows to keep WPFW on the air. Thanks to Ed Smith for being there week in and week out. Ed, looking forward to doing it again this year. All right, everybody, you all take care. Be careful. Democracy, democracy, democracy. All right, we'll see you all next week. everybody. This is a public service announcement. We'll get